welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. This morning we begin chapter 2 of John's Gospel, which is really the beginning of Yeshua's public ministry. John introduced him in the previous chapter, picked up a few disciples, and you know, when you're, when you're reading and you get to the end of chapter 1 and you're reading about Yeshua being the stairway to heaven, he, he tells them you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, and then the next thing, scene you're at a wedding. It just seems kind of abrupt, you know, like an abrupt shift. But since the Word really pitched His tent among us, He became a man, He became one of us. And since He really is the stairway connecting us to the Father, then it shouldn't be too surprising that find Him at a little tiny wedding. Performing a miracle. Now, if you were Messiah... If you were the God-man, how would you start your public ministry? I mean, you've been, you've been 30 years in obscurity. You've been learning the Word of God, studying the Word of God. You've been in prayer. You've been preparing for your ministry to start. It's time to start. You know, I would think you would go to Jerusalem during a feast day when the crowds are there, hundreds of thousands of people, and then you do something spectacular to get their attention. And then it's like everyone would see who you were, right? They'd realize, hey, this guy is something special. Well, Yeshua began his public ministry at a little wedding in a very small village. His first sign was so domestic that it's just incredible. Very few people even knew what was going on. With this first sign, what he's really doing is meeting the needs of a new married couple. And and I think we see right away, or what strikes me in this text is, care and concern for the common people characterized Yeshua. He cared about people. It was always on his heart to minister, to care for people in their smallest of needs. Let's look at our text. John starts out in 2.1. says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Yeshua was there. Now, on the third day from what? It's amazing how people, you know, read the, the go, go on and on trying to tell people what day this is. This is the third day from the previous day mentioned, which was in 143. He says the next day, all right? And the next day was the fourth day in the series, if you go through day to day, all right? So you got the fourth day, then this is the third day. So what day is it? It's the seventh day, all right? Now that's significant. You know, numbers are important in Scripture. Lazarus' reference here to the succeeding days are. I think is one thing is it reflects his precise knowledge on what's going on. Because he was there. He was an eyewitness. So the third day is the seventh day. Let me lay this out again for you. Day 1, John 1.19, the day before Yeshua publicly arrives. He's in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. All right. Well, John meets with a delegation from Jerusalem, and they're questioning him. Who are you? And they want to know because he's in the region of the Jordan down there where Elijah disappeared from. He's in the region where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan to come into the promised land. This is a very special area, and he's down there preaching and baptizing them. So they come down and say, who are you? Are you the Christ? He said, no. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? He said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. On day two, starts in John 1.29, John introduces Yeshua publicly for the first time, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Day three is John 1.35. John introduces Andrew and Lazarus to Yeshua personally. So he's starting to pick up some disciples. Day four is in John 1.43. Peter finds Philip, brings him to Christ. Philip finds Nathaniel, brings him to Christ. Day five and six, they're traveling from Bethany beyond Jordan up to Cana. It's about a two-day trip. All right, they're down there in Bethany, the bottom of the screen there in the Dead Sea, and they travel up to Cana, Galilee, which was a two-day trip. So Yeshua arrives in Cana, and he's at a wedding. Now, the Jews regarded periods of seven days as reflecting God's creative activity. They said numbers are very significant to the Jews. We think of number seven as just seven things. They think of it, there's some, some symbolism there. And maybe Lazarus wanted his readers to associate this beginning of Yeshua's ministry with the beginning of the cosmos in Genesis 1.1, which also happened in seven days. If so, this would be another witness to Yeshua's deity. Now, he's, the wedding here is in Cana of Galilee. Caden, this is probably the modern village of Keb Cana, which is about four miles northeast of Yeshua's hometown of Nazareth. You can see the towns up there, Nazareth, Cana, they're very close to one another. Bethsaida, Gesp, Chorazin, they're all in that general area up there. It's in this region. It's about 12 miles from the Sea of Galilee. It's about 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. As I said, this would have been a two-day walk from uh, Jordan where they had been baptizing. So they've kind of finished what's going on there, and he heads up to a wedding. You know, make a two-day trip on foot to go to a wedding. So they arrive at Cana. What's the center of every wedding? Huh? The bride, right? Absolutely. The groom really doesn't even matter at a wedding, okay? He's just kind of there as eye candy. They're not really that important. The bride is the center of every wedding. What you, what's interesting about this text, we have no clue who the bride is. We have no clue who the groom is. You know, none of the details seem to be all that important in this wedding. The main thing is Yeshua performs a miracle, a sign. So we don't know who all's here or why they're there. You know, most people in these little villages like Cana, they lived in considerable poverty. They survived just on the basics. I mean, their society was so different than ours. They worked to eat. There wasn't a lot of leisure time. Anytime they had that they weren't working, they had been in the scriptures, studying, memorizing. The wedding was the one exception for these limitations they had on their economy, as much as possibly could be done, they would throw it all the wind and put everything into it, much like people do today, you know, to have this huge wedding. But the money in these weddings weren't all spent on a bridal gown, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. The money at these weddings were all spent on food and drink to party, all right? They were having a celebration, all right? Again, life is hard. They just go by on the basics. A wedding was one time when they forgot all that and said, let's enjoy life. Now, Jewish weddings had three stages, all right? You can't think of it anything like ours because it's totally different. The first stage was the betrothal. It took place at least a year before the wedding celebration. And this could not be broken. It wasn't an engagement like ours. It was, it was a binding contract. It could not be broken except by divorce. Look what Matthew says in 118. Now the birth of Yeshua, the Christ, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. All right, there's this betrothal period. Before they came together, any kind of physical relationships, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. 
That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? How'd you like to be married? Explain this one to your parents. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Listen, she's been unfaithful. This breaks the betrothal. I got to get rid of her. I got to do it secretly. I don't want to do anything more to embarrass her. Now, notice what the text says here. It says, Joseph, her husband. They're not, they haven't gone through the ceremony yet, but the betrothal period, like I said, was binding. In, the, in Jewish thinking, a betrothed woman is already the wife of the man to whom she was betrothed. Now, betrothal among the Jews is not like our present-day engagement, far more binding, far more serious. The bridegroom and the bride would pledge their troth, meaning their faithfulness or loyalty to each other, in the presence of witnesses. They get a bunch of family together. They make this pledge. Now, according to old covenant regulations, unfaithfulness in a betrothed woman was punishable by death, according to Deuteronomy 22. A betrothed couple was considered legally married, even though they had not lived together and they had no physical relations. It was binding. This period normally lasted 12 months and served as a period of protection to establish the partner's fidelity. I'm not sure how they did that in the men, but it was easy in the women, okay? All right. So a year. So what's going on in this year? Well, after, this, after they do their betrothal, the husband would leave and go back, and he would prepare a place for the bride. That sound familiar? You know, Yeshua says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. All right? And then I'm going to come again and get you so you can be where I am. All right? Well, this is what the husband did. And normally what they did was they would go back to the family home and they would add on to it. All right? Sometimes they would build their own, but normally they would add on to the family house. Now, the bridegroom had full responsibility for all the costs of the wedding. He had to pay for everything. I was kind of wondering, how did this switch? And now it's the groom's parents, I mean, the bride's parents that are stuck with this. And that, I think, has to do with the dowry, because if you had a daughter, you would always give a dowry with your daughter, you know, something to help out. And I think that translated somehow into the bride's father pays for everything. All right, But the bridegroom had full responsibility. His job was to get everything ready, and when everything was ready, when the house was built, all the furnishings were ready, everything was set to live together, he'd go and get his wife. All right? Now, the second phase was the procession. And it was the father of the groom who decided when things were ready. Okay, the house is ready. You got everything done. You got enough money saved up. All right, son, go get your bride. And this was usually done at night when there could be a spectacular torchlight procession. You're going to see, you're, hopefully you're thinking of a lot of scriptures coming to your mind as we go through this, because this is so biblical, all right? The bridegroom and his friends would go to get the bride, and they would escort her back to the groom's house. The blowing of the trumpet signaled the beginning of the procession. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we see the trumpet blown as Christ, the bridegroom, goes to get his bride. All right, so they got the procession, the trumpet blows, He goes off with his groomsmen, so to speak, to go to the bride's house. She doesn't actually know when he's going to show up. So she has to be ready because she doesn't know the day or the hour. But here he shows up, he gets his bride, he takes her back to his house. The third stage is what's described in our text was the wedding feast. And it usually lasted for a week. You know, our weddings are usually a couple hours long, you know, a couple hours. You know, have the ceremony and you go to a rehearsal and you celebrate for a couple hours. This is a week-long celebration, all right? That would be a fun wedding. 
And it was a big celebration because the groom had been working for a year, getting everything ready, preparing for this. And the bride had been waiting, preparing for this. And finally the time comes, and it's just this immense celebration. It was a major social event for the whole community. According to the Mishnah, the wedding would take place on Wednesday if the bride was a virgin. If she was a widow, it would take place on a Thursday. (laughs) I don't understand that, but that's just what history tells us, all right? There's a couple passages, you know, in the Scriptures that give us a glimpse of this seven-day celebration. The first is the marriage of Jacob and Leah in Genesis 29. You know, he gets Leah, and he spends a week celebrating. Well, he realizes what's going on, and he says, well, you just fulfill the seven days, and then, you know, I'll give you the one you really want, all right? The second, I think, and most instructive is the wedding celebration uh, that happens in Judges 14 of Samson, you know? Um, I think, you know, the story, you know, this guy is just a really spoiled little brat. He finds a girl that he likes, and mom and dad, you get her for me. I can't really talk to women. You know, you set this thing up. So the parents set it up, and he's going down for the wedding celebration. And on his way, he finds a, a dead, he kills a lion, and he comes back the next time, the lion's got honey in it. So he makes up this riddle, and he tells, you know, he's in down among the Philistines, and he's kind of tormenting them. If you can tell me my riddle, then we'll do this, and then, you know, you'll get the prize and all this stuff. So, you know... His wife is going crazy over this because they're tormenting her. The Philistines are tormenting her. Tell us the riddle. Tell us the riddle. And she doesn't know it. However, it says she wept before him seven days while the feast lasted. Every day she's nagging him. Tell me the riddle. Tell me the riddle. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him. Guys, you understand that, right? (laughs) Get to the point. I'll give up. I'll tell you what you need to know. All right? Then she told the riddle to the sons of her people. So she tells them the riddle. And so Samson's, he's ticked off about this, you know, so he never consummates the marriage, he leaves. And so they take her, and her father takes her and gives her to a companion of his. So we had a celebration, we had a feast, hey, someone might as well get married, so he gave her to somebody else, all right? Well, according to the ancient customs, it was on the seventh day of feast that the bridegroom and bride finally came together, and he lifted her veil and uncovered her face for the first time. This is the first time she would fully be revealed to him and the marriage would be consummated. In the first century, this moment of revelation, the lifting of the veil, was called the apocalypse, which means the unveiling. So think about that one for a while, okay? Recalling the creation imagery from Genesis chapter 1 and John's prologue with, you know, John used words like light and darkness and the creative word of God. Some see a connection here between Genesis' seventh day and this seventh day. And, you know, he makes it a point that this is the seventh day for a reason. He's not just telling us that because, you know, he thought we might be curious. Remember I said that the third day was really the seventh day. Now, in the creation story on the seventh day, we know God rested, right? On the sixth day of creation, God created beasts and he created Adam. And then knowing that Adam needed a companion, he put him to sleep and he creates the woman from her. Now, according to the Old Covenant Hebrew tradition... Adam and the woman awoke from the deep sleep on the next day, which would be the seventh day, and God joined them together. So this wedding may reflect back on the creation account. On the seventh day of creation, according to tradition, there was a wedding. And this is why, in the Old Covenant tradition, a wedding celebration lasted for seven days. Now, at this wedding, the mother of Yeshua is there. What's she doing there? Well, I think as you read the text, you find out she's just not a guest, okay? She's not just a guest at the wedding. 
She's helping out with the wedding. She's running the thing. She's the food coordinator, if you will. She's responsibility for the food and the drink, making sure it's all out there and everything stays full. You know, she'd be like Sharon at the conference. You know, making sure everybody gets enough food, enough drink, everything's taken care of. We can tell this, you know, because in 2.5, she's telling the servants what to do. And in 2.3, she noticed that the wine's out, you know. So she's on top of things here. She's, she's working there. The most logical explanation would be she's probably family. She's probably connected somehow to the people who are getting married. She's family, so she's there helping out. She's the wedding coordinator. Now, nothing said about Joseph uh, because he's probably died by then. We don't hear anything really of him after Yeshua's 12 years old from then on. So he probably died. He's out of the picture. But Mary's there. She's running the wedding. And verse 2 says, And both Yeshua and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Yeshua, of course, if Mary's related, Yeshua's related to these people too. So he gets invited. Now you say, well, why is the disciples invited? Well, a, a rabbi attending anything would take his disciples with him. A rabbi didn't do anything without his disciples. But also, these guys were from this area. So they're probably all got invited to the wedding anyway, because they all know each other. It's a very small town. So they're all together at this wedding. And this event transpired really early in Yeshua's ministry. It's before he called the twelve. We don't know exactly how many disciples attended the feast, but from information we're given in the previous chapter, there was at least five of them. There's Lazarus, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Yeshua said to him, They have no wine. This is serious. <laughs> All right? The wedding, a seven-day celebration is in full swing, and there's no wine. That's not good. Okay? That's not good at all. Within the Palestinian wedding, wine was a very essential part of the celebration. All right? It's essential. It's not like you have a wine, no open bar. You know, it's all there. Yeah, it's an open bar. You can drink all you want. All right? The, the wine is there, and it's for them to celebrate. The Jewish rabbis claim without wine, there is no joy. All right. Now, the place of wine was so significant that failure to provide enough would have created a serious breach of hospitality. All right, you know this culture. You know how important hospitality is. Mary's report to Yeshua that the wine had run out was not just a comment on the level of the wine barrel. Yeshua would have immediately recognized that this young couple and their families would live in embarrassment for probably the rest of their lives for failing to adequately provide for this wedding celebration. This was huge in their culture. This would have shamed them. This would have disgraced them. I actually read accounts where the bridegroom was sued by guests for running out of food and drink. That's how serious this was, all right? Because that was, you know, this is what you're supposed to do at this celebration. And social failure in a small town environment like this is not something you outlive or overcome, all right? The, oh, yeah, that's the couple who had the cheap wedding, you know? They couldn't even provide for us, you know? We're, I mean, we're so looking forward to this wedding because this is such a huge relief from our status and our, our, our drudgery, and, you know, it's a bust. Well, why does Mary tell Yeshua about the wine? I mean, why does she go to him? You know, he's there as a guest. He's not working. You know, she's the one in charge of things, and they're out of wine. You think she tells some sewer, go buy some wine. You guys do something. No, she goes to her son, and she goes, they don't have any wine. 
Now, there's a couple scenarios here that could play out. Maybe as her firstborn, she knew he would do whatever he could to solve the problem. I mean, this is, this is my son, all right? He's a great guy. He's always been the perfect child, okay? And I know he takes care of his mom. He's going to do whatever he can to provide this, to fix this problem. She's always been able to count on him. But verse 11 seems to indicate that Yeshua had done no miracles to this point. So she hadn't seen him do anything spectacular. So she's like, you know, what's he been doing all this 30 years? He studies his Bible a lot. You know, he prays a lot. You know, he's just a super kid. But he's never, you know, never done anything. So I I don't know what she really expected of him. You know, she could have just thought, he'll figure out a way. But let me give you another scenario. That's where the song comes in. Mary knew that Yeshua was Messiah. All right? She knew that. And she probably wanted him to do something. So everybody would know that. She's had a secret that she's lived with for 30 years. A secret that only her and Joseph and the Lord really understood. And she, you know, she's probably at this point of frustration. Now show them who you are. As far as the world was concerned, our Lord might have well have been an illegitimate child. You know, there's even indications of that in the Gospel of John. The Pharisees say, we are not born of fornication. In other words, well, your mama had you out of wedlock. You know, this might have been circulating. So Mary's like, you know, hey, can we please get this over with and you show them that you're God? All right, that I wasn't doing anything wrong. It wasn't me. And so, so I think in a way she's anxious for vindication because, listen, she was a young teenager, around 13 years old. Charity's age. 13 years old. I was talking to Charity earlier. I said, how would you like to tell your parents, guess what, I'm having a baby, and I have no idea how this happened. be kind of hard to tell your parents, wouldn't it? Well, in her day and age, yes, it would be very difficult to tell your parents. 13 years old. She's betrothed to Joseph, so she's excited. I'm going to be married. I'm going to have a family. Everything's going well. And then an angel shows up in Luke 1.30 and says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Yeshua. And Mary responds like any young girl would. She go, Mary said to the angel, uh, How can this be? I'm a virgin. Never been with a man. I'm only 13 years old. I'm, uh, I'm betrothed, but we've never been together. So the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. 13 years old. Confronted with an angel. You're having God's baby. The angel says, You're going to... Give birth to the God-man. Now remember, Mary gave birth to this child while she was still a virgin. She knew how special he was. She had raised the Son of God, so it would be only human for her to long for some vindication. You know, Lord, will you show him your God so I can get this stigma off my back? Or would you just finally do something? I mean, every mother wants her child to be special, Right? And so she's saying, Lord, show them who you are. This is a good time. She might have been very anxious as she approached him. They don't have any wine. And she's kind of smiling. Can you fix that? 
I think that Yeshua's response to her tells us that she wanted him to show everyone who he was. And just the way he responds. Now, if she had just come saying, hey, can you help us run to the store or something? That wasn't what she was saying. Look at his response to her. And Yeshua said to her, woman, not mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. You know, this verse is a real stumbling block to Catholics who love Mary and cannot understand why Yeshua would speak so disrespectfully to his mother. Well, he doesn't call her mom. He calls her woman. Westerners kind of consider this disrespectful, but this was an acceptable word used in Yeshua's Yeshua's culture. It didn't have any negative connotations. He certainly would not have dishonored his mother. People, we got to get that, all right? He didn't dishonor his mother because, remember, he's the one who wrote this. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh, your God, gives you. He wrote that. So he's not dishonoring his mother. He's not being disrespectful to her by calling her woman. Calling his mother woman probably indicates that he wants her to understand there's a new relationship between he and her as he enters his public ministry. All right? It's hard for every mother, you know, when the children move out. But you know, she was going, yeah, this is a different level now, Mary. You and I have been, you know, son and mother for all these years. But now I'm moving into my ministry. And now I'm God's son. These are similar words when he says, what does that have to do with us? That kind of sounds arrogant to us. But this is a Hebrew idiom. And it should be literally translated, what to me and to you. It means, what does this have to do with us? You know, why are you telling me? That's not my concern. This Hebrew idiom is used five times in the Tanakh. It always has this idea of, you know, what to you and me? Well, what do we have to do with each other? It's used six times in the New Testament. This is fascinating. The other five uses in the New Testament are all spoken of by demons to Yeshua. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So every use of this in the New Testament, demons are talking to Yeshua, but this time he's talking to his mother. And you're like, whoa, what is there, a connection there? No, I don't think there is. It's just, you know, basically, like I said, it's a Hebrew idiom. What's the connection? What do I have to do with this? The phrase suggested a divergence of opinion. Now, since his ministry had begun, Yeshua was differentiating himself as the Son of God from his human mother. He was indicating to Mary that there was now a new relationship between them. He was now out from under her authority, and he's totally under the authority of his Heavenly Father. His mother and his physical family are not going to have any special advantage as far as ministry goes. All right? They look like everyone else. They'd come to him like everyone else. They had to trust in him to be saved. No special, well, this is my mom, will let her slip in. No. And I think he's trying to indicate that. Ministry's beginning. You've got to understand this, Mary. And this shift would not have been easy, especially for a mother. 30 years of having the perfect child. Notice what Yeshua said. While Yeshua was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. In other words, man, your mother is a special person. She's really blessed. But he said, on the contrary, 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, I want you to know that who's really blessed? Those who follow. People thought there was going to be a special spiritual advantage of being the mother of Yeshua. The Catholics still believe this today. But Yeshua cut off that assumption. The focus point of the attention was not physical relations. It was spiritual relations. Look at what he says in Mark 3. The crowd was sitting around him. He's teaching. And they said to him, Behold, your mother, your brothers, they're outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those that were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Yeshua makes it really clear his new position. He is no longer a stonemason and a family man. As the Son of God, he is beginning his ministry. This is the foundation, and this is the central pillar of the new people of God, the new Israel. And it was such that his loyalties now lay. He's trying to tell them these physical relations are not important anymore. Now Mary, Yeshua's mother, had been replaced in his affection, in, not in his affections. He still loved his mother. He cared for her. But in his mission, her role was different. She had to come to him as Lord. He still provides for her. He still takes care of her. We see that as he's on the cross dying. He says, Lazarus, take care of my mom. All right? There's no doubt that he loves his mother, always loved his mother, but this is a, this is a shift here because now she has to not accept, just see him as her son, but as the son of God. So Yeshua says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. What did he mean by that statement? Well, most scholars will agree that in the fourth gospel, the reference to Yeshua's hour most often points to the hour of Christ's passion and death on the cross. He says in chapter 12, and Yeshua answered them saying, my hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And by that he means die. In this gospel, the expression, my hour, on the lips of our Lord is a reference to the time of the cross. So Yeshua is saying, it's not time for me to display my glory yet, Mary. It's not time for that. A Catholic commentary on this verse says this. The purpose of this incident is to instruct us and to help us understand the power of Mary's intervention, not just on behalf of the bride and groom at Cana, but her concern and power to intervene for all her children. See, that's what this verse is all about, telling you how special Mary is. The wonderful thing about Mary is that when we petition our Holy Mother for her assistance, she advocates, she always prays for us according to the Father's will for our lives, not just according to our requests. Now, that's Catholic theology. In opposition to this, the Scripture says, that, says there is one meteor, one God, and one meteor between God and man, the man, Christ, Yeshua. It's Christ alone who is the stairway to heaven. Mary's simply a woman who had the unique privilege of bearing the Son of God. No special place in Scripture. We're not to pray to her. We pray to God. She doesn't have any you know, special sway on Yeshua that she can twist his arm and get him to do things that you know, we want him to do. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, Obviously, Mary didn't feel like this was a rebuke when he said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? She didn't feel rebuked by his comments. She knew her son. She must have felt he's going to do something to help. So she says, hey, whatever he tells you, do it. Listen, if you want to pay attention to Mary, if you want to venerate Mary, if you want to listen to Mary's remarks, focus on this one. <laughs> whatever Yeshua tells you to do, do that. That's what it's all about. Great words out of Mary. 
She's talking to the servants. She just tells the servants. She has control over these servants because she's a you know, coordinator at the wedding. I think he's going to do something. I'm not, I don't know what he's going to do, but I know my son. He's going to help out. He's going to take care of things. So if he tells you to do something, just do what he tells you. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 12 or 30 gallons each. All right. It's customary to have these large water jars of stone in or near a room where a feast is being held so they could ceremonially wash their hands as prescribed before and after meals. Now, this has nothing to do with germs or cleanliness. This is ceremonial purification. So they'd have these, and you'd go and you'd pour the, take the water out, and you'd pour it all over your hands or whatever, and so make yourself ceremonially clean. Look what Mark says in Mark 7, 1 and 2. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, and when they had come from Jerusalem, and had seen that some of the disciples were eating their bread, with impure hands, that is unwashed. <gasps> now, these are not the bathroom police saying you didn't wash your hands. This is the impurity police. You know, they're, they're, they're getting on him because the word unwashed here doesn't refer to hygiene. It's just hands that are ceremonial, washed in this religious sense. Now, I want you to understand that this particular ritual here of washing is not described anywhere in the law. It's not in the Tanakh. This is a man-made thing. that They, they added a lot of stuff. There's 613 laws in the Tanakh. On top of that, they added tons more. Okay? So they made, they made it a, really, a real burden to live under this system. All right? It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. Again, this is ceremonial. Thus observing the tradition of the elders. That, they're not just observing the law of Moses. They're observing traditions. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. Why is that? What's wrong with the marketplace? There's Gentiles at that marketplace. Okay? There's sinners at that marketplace. And you, you know, you pick up a fruit to check it. Well, a Gentile just picked it up before you did. Now you got Gentile cooties on your hands, you know, and you're impure. All right? And they had to do something about this. All right? They had to be very careful about this. Gentiles and sinners were two people they, they wanted to stay away from. They didn't want that contamination. And there were many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and cups. They washed everything. This is, again, not cleanliness, ceremonialist. So if you come into contact with any of these groups, a Gentile or a sinner, you're defiled. And so they had to go through this thing. And really, what this did, this cut them off from the majority of people. You couldn't, get, you couldn't get around these people. So if a man went to the marketplace, he automatically assumes he's contaminated when he comes home. He goes through this different washings. They go through all these procedures of the rituals. It's a religious world of isolation because they're just worried everybody's going to contaminate us. You know, It's still like that in the church today. We've got these fundamental separatist groups that you know, they go into secondary separation well, if you know somebody who did that, then you're guilty, you know, and it just gets crazy. It really does. He says there's six stone water pots that are there, all right? We know that these were holy water for purification because John tells us the stone vessels, they used pottery vessels for wine. And holy water is kept in these stone vessels. Some scholars believe that the number six has symbolic significance. I think it does. I think, you know, he's not just didn't say six because, he, you know, he, this is important. Six is one less than seven. Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of completeness or fullness. 
So the, I think these water jars can represent the incompleteness of Judaism. Here's Judaism's system at its best right here. Keeping yourself clean, all right? Yeshua said to them, fill the water pots with water so they fill them up to the brim. Now Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you, so they do it. They don't question. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Fill them up. Maybe he's going to you know, say, we all need to cleanse ourselves and there'll be more wine or something. I don't, they don't know what's going on. They're just obedient servants. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. From this guy, these servants' perspective, Yeshua is telling them, take some water out of these jars for purification and take it to the head waiter because we're out of wine. He'll love this water. What are these guys thinking? You know, I I think I would have argued a little bit. Wait a second. I'm not taking it. He'll have our heads. We'll be fired. We got this catering gig. We don't want to lose it. We're trying to get a name in Canaan in this region. You know, and we're going to take water to the head waiter when he's out of wine? That's just crazy. What's he going to say when we hand him water? Do they know any better? No. What was going on in their minds? When the head waiter tested, tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew where it came from. The head waiter called the bridegroom. So it says the water had become wine. Okay? This is a miracle, people. This doesn't normally happen. This is a miracle. Yeshua created wine. This is a miracle of creation. And again, that's why people want to connect this back to Genesis 1 in a creation account because Yeshua has created something here. Now, let's stop for a minute in light of this purification and separation idea and think for a minute what's happening here. When When Yeshua was invited to the wedding, he didn't say, well, you know, they're probably drinking at that ceremony and I don't want to be I don't want to associate with that kind of stuff that's just not me I don't want to associate with those evil people getting drunk so I'm just going to decline I'm not going to go to the wedding okay I better not go and when Mary comes and tells him that he he did go to the wedding she comes and tells him they're out of wine you know he thought for himself said let him drink water they've had enough to drink you know I mean these bunch of drunkards this is crazy no he didn't say that at all Yeshua's at a wedding where they're drinking They're having a great time. And it's not grape juice, people. All right? We'll get into that in a little bit later. Because there's, you know, how many commentators, oh, this wasn't really drunk. You couldn't get drunk. This was just grape juice. And the head waiter said, this is the best grape juice I ever had. (laughs) Glad you brought the best out, you know, (laughs) in the beginning. All right? Let them drink water. No. He creates wine, and he creates lots of it. Over 100 gallons of wine. Good wine. This would probably shock most American Christians. How in the world can he do that? You know, but the scriptures teach that wine is a gift from God. Do you believe that? (laughs) Look at Genesis 27. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. Abundance of wine. May God give you that. You know, wine is to cheer the heart. Wine is associated with joy. Look at Psalm 104. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. I love that. Causes the grass to grow. And the vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine, which makes man's heart glad. 
so that he may make the face glisten with oil and food which sustains men's heart. So he made wine to make man's heart glad. Wine is also used as medicine in the scripture. 2 Samuel 16 talks about that. Proverbs 31 talks about that. The rabbis say wine is the greatest of all medicine. Where wine is lacking, then drugs are needed. What did Paul tell Timothy? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake, and you're often infirmities. Now, that's not weird coming from a healer. Paul had to get the healing. Paul healed people. Timothy, I want to, nah, take some wine. It'll be better and you'll enjoy it more, you know? Have some wine. Wine in Scripture is associated with joy. It's associated with gladness. Look at Isaiah 25. Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. That's what's going on in the wedding. This is a huge banquet. For all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. This is a banquet of aged wine and marrow, the fatness of the, you know, the cattle. This is a, a beautiful picture of a banquet here. And in the recurring symbolic images of the prophets, Drinking the best of wine at a banquet in the presence of God is the image of Israel in restored communion with their God. And that's how Israel would have viewed this. This is a picture of them being back in fellowship. We're enjoying the wine. We're enjoying the best of food because we are in fellowship with God. And I think this is the symbolism in our text. we got a banquet going on here. And Messiah is providing abundant wine because Israel is being restored to communion with the Father. As his ministry commences, that's what this is about. He is the new Israel. He is bringing the people, the remnant, back to God. John 2.10 says, And he said to them, Every man serves, the head waiter's talking, Every man serves the good wine first. You know that. You, you, got, you can't afford all good wine, so bring out the best stuff. Once they get a little bit tipsy, their taste buds are not so discerning, get out the Boone's Farm, you know, bring out the cheap stuff. You know, for the people there, all right? They serve the good stuff first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. You've kept the good grape juice until now. The word drunk freely here, this is from the Greek word methuo. And it actually means to become intoxicated or drunk. This is the same word used in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine. So we're not talking about grape juice. He created real wine. You know, grape juice doesn't bring joy to the heart. I don't care how much you drink of it, all right, to raise your sugar level, but it won't do much for joy. All right, but wine will do that, all right? Now, you can imagine the expression on the faces of the servants here. Because they're worrying. Are we going to get blamed for bringing water to this guy? I wouldn't just blame it on Yeshua. He told us to bring you this water, all right? But instead, he tastes this, and he goes, this is the best wine. And they're amazing. He's enthusiastic about it. He says, you brought the choice wine. So they're like, whew, (laughs) glad to see that. I don't know how this happened, but now we got wine here. So what happens here is Yeshua creates wine out of nothing. He didn't go out and get grapes. He didn't grow a vine, didn't pick the grapes, didn't smash the grapes, didn't let it ferment, did nothing. He said, pour water in there, take the water out, and all of a sudden, guess what? Well, you know what? We already know he's creator. In John 1, 3, he says, all things came into being through him. Everything that exists is because of him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's the creator of all. So you have a miracle here in which the God-man creates wine out of nothing. 
This is evidence that he's God. There's no visible exhibition of power here. This is what's really crazy. If you'd have been there, you're sitting there, you're one of the guests, you have no clue what happened. He doesn't go over and says, oh, everybody at the wedding, I need your attention. Got these wine pots filled, watch this. Hocus pocus, wine. Abracadab, no, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, become wine. Not that he just fill them up, they're full, take it out. What point did this change? We don't know, but, you know, there's no show here. There's nothing. He didn't do anything. So the guests are sitting there just thinking, wow, great wine. We don't know, you know, they don't know they were running out. The first miracle that Yeshua performed in his public ministry is pretty much a private miracle. All right? Apparently, only Yeshua's disciples, the servants, and his mother understood what really happened. It wasn't his hour, he said. So it wasn't time to display his glory yet. So he didn't. He kept this quiet. Now, many of the miracles of the Lord, as we'll see as we go through this, are healing miracles. All right? Miracles which he performed and some particular good for individuals. Someone had a physical need. A son had died or something had happened. So he performed this miracle. This miracle, if you read the commentaries, you read the scholars, this miracle is often called the luxury miracle. In other words, ah, no one needed this, okay? This is just, you know, a luxury, wine. Wine may be considered a luxury to us, but to the groom and the bride, this was definitely not a luxury. Remember what I said earlier about the groom providing for the wedding guests. This young couple and their families would have lived in embarrassment for the rest of their lives for failing to provide adequately for this wedding celebration. But Yeshua who cares about us, cared about a bride and a groom at the wedding and took care to meet their needs. It's incredible. It's an incredible act of compassion on our God. So few people even knew what happened. Mary probably smiled. She probably thought this was really cool. She knew his disciples understood. The servants said, oh, this guy, something's going on here. So in a sense, a glimpse of his glory was definitely shown here. This sign at Canaan has no parallel in the synoptics. This is the only gospel that this event talks about. This is unique in John, all right? I think it, the focus here really, you know, he, there's, there's spiritual lessons to be learned from this text. But I think one of the lessons we've got to hang on to is he cares about people, all right? Now, the author gives the point of the story as far as he's concerned in verse 11. He says, this beginning of the signs, Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Signs. This is the Greek word semion. And it means a mark, an indication, a token. It can also mean an event that is an indication or confirmation of something. In other words, he's, it's a sign. It points to something. He didn't just do these miracles to put on shows. The works performed by Yeshua were not just supernatural miracles. They are signs to unveil his glory and show that God is working through him. These signs or miracles are concentrated in the first 12 chapters of this gospel. And most scholars call the first half of this book the book of signs. Because this is where we see seven miracles, all right? And these, these are not random acts done at a whim to, you know, impress people. They were the Spirit acting through Yeshua, attesting to His deity. In Acts 2.22 Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words, Yeshua the Nazarene, 
a man attested to you by God with miracles. God's demonstrating who this guy is through miracles. And wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. So Yeshua turning water into wine is a sign with significance. And the significance appears to be that it showed that Yeshua had the power to create. It's pointed to Him being the Creator. The Creator God. Now this is interesting. John is writing to a Greek audience. Okay, we see that throughout the text because he keeps defining Hebrew stuff for his Greek audience. Well, the Greeks had a god named Dionysius. And Dionysius supposedly discovered wine. So the Greeks like wine. Well, we got this from the gods. That would make sense, right? So, you know, what's interesting is Dionysius is, incredit- is credited with changing water into wine on several occasions. He's worshipped and he does these acts for these people. These things would have been recorded. This, this stuff was recorded like five centuries before Lazarus even wrote. So it was known by his readers, no doubt. You know, Here's Yeshua. They're reading about this Yeshua guy changing water to wine. Well, Dionysius does that. You know, That's not a big deal. Listen, this is polemic. All right? Lazarus is, is saying, not Dionysius. He is not creator. Yeshua is the creator. This is literally a jab at their gods. He's not the one who does this. This is the man who makes this happen. For example, in Ugaritic... And in Hebrew, Baal's epitaph, the god Baal, was called the cloud rider. He was the god who rode the clouds. But in Scripture, we see attacks put at that because they say, no, no, it's not Baal, it's Yeshua. Isaiah 19.1, the oracle concerning Egypt, behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. He's about to come to Egypt. Yahweh, not Baal, is the cloud rider. All through Scripture we see this, but you don't get it unless you understand their gods and what they believe their gods could do. And over and over, the prophets and through the Word of God, they're saying those gods are nothing. Yeshua is the God of gods, Lord of lords. He's over all of them. It's not Dionysius who's the creator. It's Yeshua. And it says that it manifests His glory. This is the first mention of the word glory since John 1.14. You know, he came flesh, he tabled among us, and we saw his glory. And Lazarus understands that the miracle of Cana did reveal the glory of God. He said we'd see his glory when he was made flesh. And at Cana, just a small portion of that glory was made present in a humble village wedding with rough stone water pots. Here we see the glory of God revealed to a few people there, but to many people who read the Gospel of John. And this gospel is written that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ and believing you may have life in his name. So he writes to those, you know, the the glory is not seen too much there. And shortly after the first wedding mentioned in Genesis 2, the glory of God was lost because they were driven out of the garden. At Cana, the glory of God is back at another wedding, a sign of a new beginning. This sign, as many others, seemed to be directed primarily at his disciples. And it says, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I think they'd come to faith before, but he's just saying their understanding is increasing. They're growing in their faith as they see these things happening. So what's the purpose of Yeshua turning water into wine? What, what is he trying to teach us here? Is this just, you know, something to reveal his glory? 
Well, we talked about this before in John, but when you're going through this fourth gospel, we have to ask, what is the sign? What is what's happening here in the physical level? Tell us on a spiritual level. There's more to it than just the physical thing. For example, one of the signs that Lazarus is going to talk about in the sixth chapter is feeding the 5,000, right? Takes a few fish, takes a few loaves, feeds 5,000 people, stuff left over. So what's the point of this? To show that our God can feed everybody. Show some spiritual power. No, there's truth behind this. And later he, re- he goes in that same discourse and he says, I am the bread of life. So he feeds them. they got a physical illustration. Then he goes on and says, listen, I'm the bread of life, okay? So feeding the 5,000 with loaves and fishes, that's utterly impossible to do naturally. But it's designed to show us that he is the bread of life. And when we come to him, when we believe in him, we will have everlasting life. So the miracle in the physical sphere is designed to represent the spiritual benefits that flow from our Lord's work on the cross. So the signs then, the miracles in the natural sphere are designed to express spiritual truth. It seems to me the first and foremost, this sign, put at the beginning of the fourth gospel, is designed to indicate the inauguration of a new age. Those stone pots, that's Judaism, they're done with that. We're bringing out the wine of Christianity. The law is passing away. It's done. The age of the fulfillment of everything anticipated is come now. Lazarus said in the opening chapter, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Yeshua the Christ. And here we are, given one of the indications of that. We have the water pots, transforms water into wine, new covenant, forgiveness. There's so much symbolism here. We could go into the Lord's Supper and the wine. We go into so many things. You know, they're symbolic here. You, don't, you could stretch this pretty far, but you've got to be careful. You know, I think there's an indication here that he's talking about a transition, okay? New wine, all right? That old stuff's gone. R. Brown states this, in view of the consistent theme of replacement, it seems obvious that in inducing Cana as the first in a series of signs to follow, the evangelist intends to call attention to the replacement of the water prescribed for Jewish purification by the choices of wines. This replacement is a sign of whom Yeshua is, namely the one sent by the Father who is now the only way to the Father. All previous religious institutions, custom and feasts lose meaning in his presence. I think that's good. I think that's what's happened. We're seeing a transition. The wine replacing the water in essence symbolizes the replacement of the old covenant with the superabundance of the new covenant. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says over and over. This is a far better covenant. Way better. Way better. Leon Morris writes this. This particular miracle signifies that there's a transforming power associated with Yeshua. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. Old Covenant Israel was Yeshua's vineyard, right? You know, I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking, okay, trying to meditate on this and the, the different signs, and what is, what is he actually trying to tell us here? And I, and I think of Isaiah 5, you know, that, that you know, Yeshua's vine. He planted a vine in a very fruitful hill, and, and he planted this vine because he wanted, what, fruit. And he went and he expected it, you know, and there never was any fruit. It just brought forth buhushim, wild, sour berries. It never really produced anything. And he says, the vine, this, this vine is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So they, they never produced what the Lord wanted. Well, here's the Lord. He is the new Israel. And here's the abundance of fruit. Just a picture of what he is going to provide. And listen, it's a picture of what he provides for us. There's nothing that had to be done here. 
These guys didn't have to do anything. They just, all of a sudden, this water is turned into wine, and they're celebrating and enjoying the celebration. He's providing the best to the faithful remnant of old cousin covenant Israel at this wedding banquet, and I think it prefigures the promised restoration of the new Israel. Uh, we read that passage in Isaiah 25. Now, this was a picture of Israel being restored when they would have this banquet and abundant wine and abundant marrow. Well, now he's showing them the banquet's come. I'm here. The new covenant is being brought in. So there's a lot of spiritual significance in this miracle. It literally happened. He displayed his glory, but there's more to it than that. Now, there's something to me, though, that I think is, is more important than this, and that's the practical application that I want you to get from this. To me, the most important thing I want you to see here is that Yeshua cares about people. Again, a groom and a bride trying to start their life, and this is basically disaster for them. So he creates wine, and in it he manifests his glory, but he's also saved the bride and the groom from a life of shame. And when I read this, when I think about this, I think of what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. People, if we get that significance, if you know who he is, all right, he is the creator God. He is sovereign over every event that takes place in time. Okay, he controls who lands on boardwalk. All right, he is absolutely sovereign. Now that sometimes can shake people instead of comfort them, but it will comfort them if you take that idea, you take that theological truth and connect it with this fact, he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. It's hard to understand, Lord. You leave heaven's glory and come to suffer and die for our sins. And while you lived here and walked this earth, you so demonstrated your love for people. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I know that this groom and this bride did not view this as a luxury miracle. They might not even have known what was going on, and yet you saved them from a life of shame. Lord, it so demonstrates that you care for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Amen.